Welcome to this podcast series produced by the Race Equality and Anti-Racist Subcommittee of the University of Edinburgh in collaboration with Teaching Matters. We will hear from different academics at the university talking about what decolonizing the curriculum means for them and how they have put this into practice in their learning and teaching or research. They also share some findings and readings they have found useful. The hope is that the podcast will provide ideas, stimulate thinking and dialogue, as well as building a network of academics in the university who are interested and engaged in offering an anti-racist, a decolonized and inclusive curriculum. If you're interested in contributing a podcast to this series, please get in touch with Emily Senner or Johanna Halton, co-conveners of the Race Equality and Anti-Racist Subcommittee. To get in touch with Emily, email her at emily.senner at ed.ac.uk and to contact Johanna, email johanna.halton at ed.ac.uk. Thank you for listening. Lauren, thank you very much for taking part in this podcast series. Can I ask you perhaps to say a little bit about your work and where you're located within the university? Yeah, so I am a reader in linguistics and English language, which is one of the three subject areas of PPLS, philosophy, psychology, and language sciences. So I'm a linguist. Um, I'm specifically a sociolinguist um, and specifically a sociophonetician. And so that means that I study speech and its relationship to society. I'm very interested in your take of what, you know, how, what decolonizing the curriculum means for you. Yeah, so as a linguist and as someone who doesn't really specialize in decolonial studies, um, it's probably not surprising that my take on decolonizing the curriculum as a phrase is really a breakdown of that phrase. So thinking about the constituent parts, the colonial parts, the colonizing parts, those processes, um, and then the active undoing of them, right? The decolonizing. So um, it seems like decolonizing the curriculum must mean first identifying the aspects of curriculum that are structured structured by colonial ideology and then looking at the actions we take to perpetuate those structures and then making an overt effort to replace those actions with actions that counteract them right so that's how i think about it is breaking it down in practice what i think it turns into really is first recognizing that it's even possible for educational structures to be colonized. And I think there's a lot of people who are still not even aware of that possibility. So starting kind of before those three steps. And then really more concretely recognizing the role that um, that whiteness plays in understanding what colonialism looks like. And so recognizing that that whiteness, that colonialism, that together they're, they're so embedded, that they're so hegemonic, that they actually are everywhere in everything. And so that first step of just noticing, that's a key part of decolonizing the curriculum. And then noticing how we're positioned within that, right? So we're either co-opted into that hegemony or we're excluded from those discourses because of our own racialization, or sometimes both. Um, and so understanding what that means about how our actions interact with those structures. And then finally, I think, is decolonizing the curriculum. So finally, after all of that, then we can start to figure out what we can do. For the listener who is interested but doesn't quite know how to begin, what advice might you give them? 
a really great place to begin, honestly, is looking at the references that have been given by other contributors to this series, because the previous, and it sounds like a cop-out, but honestly, the previous contributors have all given a very diverse uh, array of different core readings and um, introductory materials to the general ideas around colonization, decolonization, and its connection to hegemonic whiteness. Um, so today I'm really going to be focusing more on uh, resources specific to linguistics and language studies. Okay, well let's go on to practice then. So how have you tried to begin to engage your students in this approach, decolonizing the curriculum? So as a linguist, there are a lot of opportunities to do this. Um, and there are a couple that I want to focus on today. So, um, like I said, I'm in the subject area of linguistics and English language. And it's really literally impossible to teach a curriculum in English language without engaging directly with colonialism and its legacies. Um, so it's just very obviously available to a decolonial approach because we're already having to engage with a history of colonialism. There's some uh, examples of that. I think uh, one of them is that um, in linguistics, we begin very early on in our introductory course talking about the fact that there is no objective definition of a language. So mainstream Western colonizer societies treat things called languages as real things. Um, and that's because of our deeply shared ideologies that tie ways of speaking to nation states and to capitalism and uh, accepted hegemonic power structures. And it has nothing to do with grammatical structures, linguistic structures. So to quote from uh, Garcia et al. 2021, which is a reference I'll give later, we recognize that named languages are sociopolitical categorizations that shape the very fabric of modern society, but we also understand that these name languages do not correspond to discrete linguistic systems. And so that's a fundamental tenet of being able to study linguistics is to simply grasp that truth. Um, and that colonial ideology of languages as discrete things is usually accompanied by the idea that some forms of language are better than others. Right. And so that's a very pervasive colonial ideology that we call standard language ideology. So, again, this is one of the things that we introduce very early on um, in all linguistics teaching this fundamental observation that any definition of good or proper or correct language, it can only ever be defined socially. There's no way to define it structurally in terms of just grammatical structure. It's always has to do with who has economic power, who has political power. Right. Um, so we have these concepts of a language and concept, concepts of a standard form of a language, and they're both entirely ideological and coming from colonial power structures uh, and worldviews. So there's this way in which linguistics in general and sociolinguistics in particular and English language research, it's, it's kind of predisposed to, or you would think it would be predisposed to a decolonial effort. Um, for decades, my field of sociolinguistics has been working to legitimate stigmatized ways of speaking. It's a core thread through the field um, to demonstrate that the idea of standard language is inherently racist, to show the normality of 
uh, multilingual practices, language mixing, translanguaging, that these are the norm of the global major majority, but they often get sidelined um, just because that global majority is also part of the global south. So, so we already kind of begin by teaching these concepts, um, centering multilingualism, drawing examples uh, of core concepts from more stigmatized or racialized linguistic varieties, um, including authors from the global south, like that sort of thing. All of that's already um, been listed as a priority in the PPLS recommendations for decolonizing the curriculum that we put together earlier this year. And it's also something that a lot of us um, have been doing in practice. So. I have one concrete example of that. Um, so last year, uh, last semester, I was teaching two weeks in our second year pre-honors course on English language history and geographical variation. And my two weeks were on contemporary non-British Englishes. So we start out with Britain and then we move on to non-British varieties. And uh, there are a lot of them, right? <laughs> There's lots and lots of non-British varieties because colonization. Um, so I decided to focus my two weeks on almost entirely just Black Englishes. Um, and so that includes West African Englishes, Caribbean Englishes, African American Englishes. There's a lot of different varieties that you can draw on, and they all make the general points that you need to make. It doesn't really matter so much um, because we're making linguistic points, right? But there's something about drawing on Black languages that allows me to really look at uh, colonial and post-colonial processes of oppression and its linguistic consequences in different geographic areas in a way that's very useful. Um, and then when those are paired, uh, so those are put into focus, and then it's paired with more peripheral treatments of the things that are often taken as default uh, in this topic area. So white non-British Englishes, right? So it's very typical in these kinds of two weeks to begin with uh, white US English, white Australian English and, and such. But if we begin with black Englishes and put them central and then make the others peripheral, then that um, presents an opportunity for challenging the, the typical approach to things. And then you bring in other commonly taught varieties like Indian Englishes or Hawaiian Englishes or Irish Englishes, and then that it necessarily draws you into discussions of the racialization of colonization. Um, and that's super useful, especially at pre-honors level, when I think a lot of our students don't come to university uh, knowing about those processes. That's immensely interesting. And as you were speaking, I'm thinking of two things. Um, one is the teaching of English um, as a second, as a language to other learners, and how so much of that is fixated on the teaching of grammar which is the standard English, as they call the Queen's English grammar. And um, so a lot of what you said, you know, just made me think about that that particular field is actually ripe for decolonizing um, the, their curriculum. And the other is status of languages. So in school education, which is the area I'm in, often community languages or languages who are not deemed to be trade and economically worthy are given very low status. I mean, I wonder if you had any views of that in case there are any education teachers listening in um, that might give some advice to them. Absolutely. In fact, the uh, two of the three readings I'm going to recommend later are coming from scholars who specifically work in education, either uh, bilingual or multilingual education, or just education in real world contexts where you have uh, racialized and minoritized speakers. So um, those references are th that area of sociolinguistics is really where the most active and overt discussion of decolonial practices is coming from. Um, and it makes sense for the reasons that you just described. 
described. Um, and in fact, you know, the other contributors to this podcast have rightly pointed out that just diversifying the syllabus is kind of the tip of the iceberg. Um, and the main area of decolonizing the curriculum that I'm personally invested in is really when it comes to not necessarily what I teach my students, but how I teach them. Um, so that it's about engaging students in understanding the colonial structures that underlie higher education. So specifically, um, the example I want to talk about is um, something that I hope others will take on board regardless of what field they're in, and that is how we mark and give written feedback to our students. Um, so instead of talking about decolonizing the curriculum in terms of what happens in the classroom, um, I think it's really important to engage with our own ideologies that structure how we mark student work because we are at an English language institution situated in the global north in the United Kingdom in Edinburgh. Where there's these layers of power that underlie our, uh, our practice of sitting down and evaluating written production from our students. Um, so if we start with the observation from basic introductory linguistics that correct language is inherently colonial, then when I come to mark my students' work, what do I do, right? So is it possible to decolonize marking? Um, so I've got a quote here from the PPLS website uh, that's on the principal grades and descriptors of the university's extended common marking scheme. Um, so for example, we've got A1, so mark in the 90s, and for that the work should be flawless in grammar and spelling. For A2, a mark in the 80s, it should be showing a high standard of grammar and spelling, and then or uh, a good standard of academic writing. And then you go down to E, which is a fail in the 30s, right? And Apparently, we expect for that, quote, an awkward writing style or poor expression of concepts and, quote, a lack of attention to spelling and grammar. So the thing to raise here is why are these part of our criteria of assessing quality argumentation, right? And if we take a linguistics perspective, it has to be because we operate in a colonial society. It just has to be that the university is inherently a colonial institution that's embedded in its structures of assessment beliefs that are colonial. Um, so that's not an opinion, it's just really follows from understanding the history and development of how marking works in higher education. Another reading I'm going to recommend later by uh, Rosa and Flores, uh, 2017, that this is a kind of linguistic remediation that is characterized by the ideological assumption that racialized subjects' language practices are unfit for legitimate participation in a modern world. So if that's true, then can we actually mark in a decolonized way? And I, I think no, but it's something that I grapple with a lot and I'm just gonna talk through what I'm doing right now um, and I welcome further discussion on this. Um, so if the framework for evaluation is colonized, <laughs> then even if you succeed in decolonizing it, you still got this issue that students are going out in a colonized world. Um, our, our marking schemes are how we evaluate how we think they will succeed in that colonized world. So, so it's very tricky. And so what I do is that I do follow the common marking scheme in most other respects. So I put a lot of emphasis on things like how well students ground their arguments in existing literature. Um, but over the past decade that I've been here at Edinburgh, I basically stopped marking on the criteria that I think is discriminatory. Um, so I just sort of ignore the criteria that I read before. And in my case, because I'm teaching sociolinguistics, I think that's a justifiable, pe justifiable pedagogical choice um, because I can basically 
not be a hypocrite, right? <laughs> I'm standing in front of the classroom saying these things, and then um, I, I turn around and enforce uh, the opposite that would be antithetical to what I'm actually trying to teach. Um, and so by keeping true to my academic values, I consequently can help promote equality, I think. Um, so to the extent that students do read the feedback, you know, then there is maybe a pedagogical benefit that actually builds on the course content. So what I do when I give written feedback um, is I draw on the sociolinguistic concepts I talked about before. Um, I don't use what are ideological terms like flawless or good standard. I write, for example, comments like, uh, note that this usage, while fine for some genres and for this assignment, does differ from the current norms of British academic English. Um, and if the form is something that I know to be a well-known feature of a non-standard variety, um, so a really common one that I get is a Chinese student who will use the word research as a count noun instead of a mass noun. Um, so they might say, like, many researches have been done in sociolinguistics, right? Then I'll write something like, note this form is a feature of Chinese English. It's absolutely fine in the context of this assignment, but it just might not be accepted in other academic venues. So that I'm not just ignoring it, but I'm actually engaging with the um, linguistic realities around what they've done. So all sociolinguistics classes teach the concept of style shifting and code switching, and we teach that people switch between different codes for different purposes. And so what I explicitly teach in my class is that as a University of Edinburgh student, what they're being asked to do is to acquire a new skill of acquiring a new linguistic code that they can shift into to perform conformity to the culture of the university. And so I point out that even the most radical thinkers that write on this are writing, one, in English, Right. And they're writing, too, in academic standard English, even though they themselves are criticizing the colonial nature of that variety. Um, so all of this to say, I don't think that this is really decolonial. It's still very much working within a colonial framework. Um, but I'm, you know, I'm not I think to be decolonial, you, you would have to really stand up to those marking criteria and actively protest them and actively tell students to resist them. But what basically what I'm doing is I'm just not not penalizing them. And I hope that that's better than than discriminating against them, which I think is still the standard practice. I think what you've described is probably one that uh, has quite a few lecturers will probably have thought through and think, you know, how do I do this? Because they are fully aware of their international cohort, but also cohorts that come from different parts of the UK will actually have different ways of speaking and writing. And I think your explanation of how you've actually tried to deal with it is immensely helpful. I hope uh, people listening in will take some nuggets of advice from that and actually reflect on their own discipline areas. I mean, certainly when I was a rookie uh, lecturer, I tended to go for things like the grammar, et cetera, without even realizing I was engaging in a degree of conformity of the colonized framework. As I became more confident as a lecturer, I began to look at content and how uh, the student is understanding the concepts that we're teaching them. And I think that is actually the more important bit. And they can describe it in the language and tone uh, of their choice, which they used to. But also many of them go back to work in the countries that they come from. They do not require to have um, Queen's English. And I, I think it's also helpful that we don't look at it in terms of simply the taught curriculum, but actually the, this is a hidden curriculum issue. 
As we come to the end of the podcast, uh, I often ask people, what are some of the readings that you would like to recommend if the listener is interested in finding out a bit more? Yeah, so I uh, I mentioned I brought along a few papers, um, three really recent papers, actually. So there seems to be a very recently growing interest in decolonizing sociolinguistics. And so all of these are reflecting that trend. So the first is Rosa and Flores 2017. It's highly, highly influential. It looks at how categories of race and language have been co-naturalized and how that furthers white supremacy. So they're critiquing sociolinguistic practice Basically, that practice I mentioned earlier of sociolinguists trying to legitimize, stigmatize ways of speaking, and they're pointing out that we're still all working within this colonial framework, so it's not really going to work. And so they argue that attention instead should be paid to how whiteness entails a way of perceiving language that furthers colonial structures. And then the charity Headley 2020 is talking to the field of linguists, um, but I think it's really easily adaptable to any discipline really. It's looking at a bunch of different related disciplines like anthropology, psychology, um, language studies and looking at how race has been treated and then ends with a six point list which is basically a list for decolonizing the curriculum. Um, and then Garcia et al 2021, it's basically the, the most clear, um, bold, straightforward uh, approach to decolonial approaches in linguistics and language study. And it's really especially drawing on multilingual educational contexts. Um, so to quote from them, they say the task is to challenge what Quijano 91 2000 has called ongoing coloniality, the imagined line in which some language practices and ways of life are understood as more academic standard or legitimate than others. I've also brought along uh, a link to three webinars that have been put out by the Linguistic Society of America on racial justice, equity, diversity, and inclusion in the linguistics curriculum. Really hot off the press because uh, two of them took place this month, one just a couple days ago, and then the third one is happening on Friday the 11th of September at 5 p.m. British summertime. Thank you so much, Lauren. I think you packed a huge amount in, uh, giving advice not just in your own discipline and subject area, but also um, into wider issues like assessment. Um, thank you very much for your time. Thanks so much for having me.